Welcome back to the Stanford Political Journal podcast, The Axe in Politics. This is episode nine, and we're sorry we took a brief hiatus, but we're back. And Better than ever. And I'm Ruri. I'm Kayla. I'm Lucas. And to start off our election coverage 2016, we're going to talk about the New York primary that happened after our last episode when Donald Trump ended up winning New York and Hillary Clinton winning, beating Bernie Sanders. Both in a fairly convincing fashion. It was pretty interesting because leading up to the New York primary, you had a lot of people like talking about how Bernie could maybe pull off this crazy upset win and how upstart his campaign and he could finally overtake Hillary's momentum, but it was never really going to happen ever if you looked at the polling data. And, and he didn't. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that looked like the beginning of the end, but even more so after this past Tuesday's uh, four out of five losses when he only won Rhode Island, which uh, I guess nobody cares about anyway. Yeah, and I, I don't think any of it was really a big surprise. I mean... Yeah, so it's going to be Hillary and Trump, and that's pretty inevitable. Yeah, Trump swept all five Republican primaries on Tuesday, um, only further suggesting that he is going to become the nominee. Yeah, and uh, but Ted Cruz announced his vice president, which uh, is funny because usually you announce that after you know you're going to be the nominee, and he announced <laughs> after it became clear that he wasn't going to be the nominee. So I guess it's like an honorary position for Carly Fiorina. Um, <laughs> Who is, is supposed to help his campaign, question mark? Yeah, and she might actually. I think her personality plays well into his campaign. But, but help isn't like, what do we mean it's going to help? He's still going to lose. Like, there's no, there's <laughs> the no way he can... The already lost. There's nothing to help. So. There's no way he can mathematically win the nomination before a brokered convention. And with Trump at so many delegates right now, we may not even have a brokered convention. Yeah, and, you know, we did see Ted Cruz and John Kasich try to form some sort of alliance, saying they were going to sort of help each other's campaigns out in Indiana. And where was the other state? It was, uh, well, I don't remember. But they were trying to form an alliance where they were say they would pull out, you know, their campaigning resources in certain states to, to they, ensure they would, the other one would win. But yeah, They would only campaign in the states that they were more competitive in. And then the one who was less competitive would stop campaigning there. But the thing is, they never explicitly told their voters to vote for the opponent. Rather, they just said, we aren't going to expend resources there. And when asked, uh, Kasich even said, uh, no, I don't want my voters to vote for Cruz in those states that I'm not going to campaign in. I just, uh, I just don't want to expend my resources. And that's kind of a a weak take at it, because I think if they really, truly wanted to get to a brokered convention, they would want to pool as many voters against Trump as possible, um, knowing that the only hope for either of them is to get nominated in a brokered convention. Yeah, it just sucks that even at this point, it's still looking out for self-interest. And, and you know, while there's not anything pretty much anyone can do at this point, it's still surprising to see that, that working together means almost nothing. But but also working together would be interesting because they're so ideologically disparate that it would almost be admitting that anyone is better than Trump. And if they admitted that anyone is better than Trump, whether you're a centrist Republican or far-right Republican, then they're basically admitting that Hillary Clinton might be better than Trump. And I think they're trying to save space for themselves to be able to jump on the Trump bandwagon should he become the nominee so that they can justify supporting the Republican nominee against Hillary. And Which is another scary thought. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see what happens with that. Um, speaking of Trump so much, uh, he gave his first major 
policy speech, and it was on foreign policy. Yeah, um, and this is some somewhere where a policy area where he's really been lacking. A lot of people have been putting a lot of pressure on him to talk a lot more about foreign policy and what he would do sort of around the world. Um, and he comes out with this sort of American first doctrine where he basically says, we are going to get out of the business of nation building. Um, but he simultaneously wants to increase military spending and build up our military as strong as possible while pulling out of various... Yeah, and so it it seemed comprehensive and it seemed like an actual doctrine, but people who are experts in foreign policy still took a look at it and said it's still crazy. It's still Trump. <laughs> and so uh, so we'll see. At least he's we can see the shift beginning where he's starting to read off of teleprompters, starting to try to be more, more presidential, presidential. Whatever that means. Yet he still is maintaining his populism and with the foreign policy more of a nativism that attracts his followers. Right, and populism have always been strongly associated with nativism if you look at American history. It's it's people want to go back to American roots and so. And this it goes right along like you said with you know America first goes with make America great again. It's just it's very it's this America first America rhetoric that people really want to hear and people who support him really want to hear. And it's got allies like Germany worried about the possibility of a Trump presidency and what that might mean to NATO and things like that if he's going to stop caring about the rest of the world. Absolutely. But moving on, uh, actually in a bit of a transition between national politics and campus politics, this week we had at Stanford former Speaker of the House John Boehner come and speak um, to students, including Lucas and I. We Yeah, we were in attendance. It was... Um, it was, uh, it was a very great event. It was um, he, thoroughly entertaining. He was very candid about his thoughts. Very Being candid. retired. Um, he's a retired politician, so he can basically say whatever he wanted. He did say, you know, if it came down to it, he would vote for Trump over Cruz after saying some... He would vote for Trump in a general election, but he would not no. vote for Cruz in a general election, which... Uh, and then he called Cruz uh, Lucifer in the flesh, and... Um, that and, comment was huge. Yeah, that comment ended up blowing up the next day in national All news. All over the internet. Um, thanks. To one of our very own. Yeah, Ada Throckmorton, um, who actually broke the story on the Daily website. Um, but, yeah, it, it got a lot of media attention. I mean, the calling out of Ted Cruz like that was huge. And um, Ted Cruz even responded to the comments in his own press conference. Yeah. And Ted Cruz's response was actually pretty good, I think, he for his cause, like for what he advocates by showing that Donald Trump is closer to the establishment than he is. And since he's trying, since Cruz and Trump were both the anti-establishment candidates, and since now they're the two main ones left in the race, well, Maine is kind of a stretch for Ted Cruz because Trump is the only one left, but Cruz is trying to fight back against the idea that Trump is anti-establishment by saying that he's been in the pockets of Boehner, people like Boehner, for years. But moving on to campus news. Yeah, so the ASSU Senate chair election happened the other day, and um, it was kind of insane what happened because a freshman was um, elected to the ASSU Senate chair. Um, over over, a, over an incumbent who... Uh, who sophomore worked who in the ASSU, knows how the ASSU works. Um, was was well-respected, got the most exactly, votes. Yeah. Got mm-hmm. the most votes during this election. Very much seen as a shoe-in for this position. Um, it was actually almost parallel to what happens in our national election. We have this sort of establishment candidate and then this outsider who comes in. And so the freshman, almost emblematic of the Tea Party, party. wave in the Republican Party, um, thought that the leadership was not uh, doing enough 
for the causes that it was not probably responding cared. to the students' well, demands, and, and so and it, it wasn't that, Hattie in particular. No, and well, I think that's yeah. almost giving them that's a, that's a lot of credit to say you know all these new freshmen also voted for a freshman, and I mean I think that's a big part of it. You come in, and you know you might even have this friend who's running for this position or someone you know better because they're in your year. And, you know, you vote for them over the sophomore incumbent who you don't know very well and you don't know anything that they've done, and it's almost easier. And the thing is, Hattie, who by all standards would have been a good chair, very qualified, very respectable person, uh, did nothing wrong other than to be a member of the old Senate. The fact that she was an incumbent hurt her in this case, and that the idea of having someone new was such an appeal. And this isn't to to say that the freshman, the new freshman elected, will do a bad job. No, she's very qualified too. Yes. She seems like she'll be. A, she'll be. She, I think Shanta will be a great chair. Exactly, but, but but it is a kind of a comment on, you know, how are these um, Senate chair elections really held? What happens? I mean, how are people voting, and what is it based off of? And I think in this case, it was really not necessarily based off of. Um, who could do the better job or what or if people had looked at um, the things that they had done in the past and it was a little bit more based off of the shallow interpretations that they had at the moment. Well put. And so now today we have a special conversation between our current editor-in-chief at the Stanford Political Journal, Truman Chen, and our former editor-in-chief, uh, Jason Willock, who is a, a writer for the American Interest. And they're going to be talking about campus politics. Thanks for joining us. Hi, this is Truman. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Stanford Political Journal currently, and today we have our special guest, Jason Willick, who was the editor-in-chief in our first year last year. Jason has gone on to write for the American Interest and has written on a variety of topics, such as civil liberties on campus, ranging from free speech to sexual assault issues, and um, we're very glad to have him here today. Welcome. Thank you. So, um... We know that there are a lot of topics you could talk about, um, but today perhaps we could update you maybe a little bit on what campus politics has been like on Stanford campus, and perhaps ask your opinion as to how this relates to national issues um, sure. that have been in the news recently. So for example, Who's Teaching Us has been one of the major political organizations on campus this year, bringing attention to the lack of diversity in both gender and color among our faculty. Um, and recently they put out a slightly provocative demands list that covers a whole range of issues. Um, but in general, um, this push for diversity has been welcomed by campus left, and the Stanford Review on campus has provided a critique of it. Um, kind of critiquing it for its methods, um, especially. And, I mean, have you, have you, have you seen this, um, you know, how does this fit into the national trend on campus? So, I've seen on my Facebook feed and sort of through my Stanford friends some of the demands of the Who's Teaching Us. Um, I've seen the Stanford Review's satirical response to it. Uh, and ultimately, this is a this is an old story. I mean, ever since um, the 1980s, uh, 
the campus left has been agitating to have more uh, diversity, not political diversity, but uh, diversity of identity, uh, sexual orientation, and color um, on staff. And this was a huge uh, point of contention in the 1980s and 1990s. It's been sort of bubbling below the surface since then, and it seems to have exploded at campuses around the country uh, in the last couple of years. Um, so I personally worry about it. I think the idea that you can only learn from someone uh, who is the same ethnicity of you as you, or the same sexual identity, or that, um, you know, I know uh, at Amherst College there's complaints that at the, the mental health officials at universities, the psychiatrists are not, they don't have enough uh, female or uh, Hispanic psychiatrists and so on, and that you can't you can't actually get a medical service from someone who's the, a different ethnicity from you. I think that that's sort of it's impossible to live in a liberal society if you uh, if you're only willing to interact uh, with someone of the same uh, identity. And I think you need to be able to accept that uh, that someone who is is white uh, can teach something to black people. Someone who is black can teach to white people doctors and psychiatrists can be of different races, and so I think this is all a very anti-liberal um, anti-liberal political tendency, and I think it's old. Um, it's, it's at least been, been going on for a generation on campus, um, and I think it's a uh, cause for some concern, and as I understand it, the, uh, you know, administration is not gonna, you know, um, set these uh, quotas for uh, for faculty, uh, if that was, I imagine, one of the demands, or install new courses, new diversity training courses. Um, you know, I obviously think everyone should learn about different societies, about Western society and about Western civilization and other civilizations, and everyone who's most qualified should get should get jobs. And um, you know, uh, even 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 you can you can take diversity into account. And I'm not all, always opposed to affirmative action programs. But I, but I think that this, this basic, this tribalism, that's just, it's very tribal, it's a very sort of primitive um, way of thinking that you, can, that you can only interact with people who look the same, and I think that that's, that that's troubling, that, uh, um, and so I, do, I worry about that. Yeah, I think one of the weaknesses that are that surrounding this campaign is that there's a lot of reasons that are very different that one might be interested in supporting this campaign. As far as I was aware, it seems to me that the one of the major reasons for supporting such a push for diversity is not such that you have to learn from somebody of or you cannot help but you i mean you have you must learn from somebody of your ethnicity or um gender identity, but rather that seeing that represented among your faculty um not only is serves as some sort of inspiration, but also these people may have experiences that are not um, as readily available in other faculty members. Like for example, I, I'm, I'm confident that there are certain faculty of color, for example, in the history department who, by their very identity, have a unique perspective on certain political questions, for example, and also they might serve as some sort of support for students of color on campus um, for who are searching for a more readily available perspective. Yeah, I mean, 
The idea that uh, that we want to, I mean, this idea of diversity, we want diversity on the faculty so people have different perspectives. Um, there was just a there was just a forum about that at Stanford Law School and Michael McConnell was talking about the various kinds of diversity you can have on a faculty. You can have methodological diversity, so you can have um, someone who studies, you know, based on em empirically using data, or someone who uses, um, you know, someone who's a theorist. You, you can have all sorts of uh, diversity, methodological diversity within a discipline. Um, you can have, uh, uh, and, and as you said, you can have diversity of perspectives, diversity of, of uh, beliefs. Um, and I think that that's legitimate, and I think that it's it's legitimate uh, to want to have um, a diversity of perspectives. I worry that I, th I think it's kind of contradictory that you hear on the left. So being black is a proxy for having a certain kind of diverse, a certain kind of perspective. You have a better perspective of you know African American history if you're black. So therefore, we should hire more black people. We'll get more of that perspective. But then it's a microaggression if in a class you say to a black student well, can you give us the black perspective on this? But that's effectively institutionally what you're saying if, uh, if you want to uh, hire more people of a certain gender identity or you know, ethnicity uh, for the supposed perspective that gives them. So I think we need to be clear about what we're asking for. And as I said, I'm not opposed. I mean, I think that there should be um, some level of affirmative action. Um, but I think that that needs to acknowledge that who you are ethnically or gender, whatever, is not actually a perfect proxy for who you are and what you know and what you've experienced. And, um, and so I don't think that we should essentialize it um, in that way. Yeah. So do you think that these contradictions that you've just pointed out could be resolved in some way? And are you generally agreeing with the end goal in some way, but just kind of disagreeing with the way to get there in that... Um, since you since you mentioned that you're in support in general of such a sort of diversity, but the way they're carrying it out is not well. I don't know. I don't know what their what their tactics are. Uh, I don't know what the tactics are. I mean, look, the way people are hired at a university, as I understand it, is uh, the the university faculty decides who the the scholars who are on in the in the department decide who they want to hire, and they offer those, those people jobs, and they offer those people tenure, and they're not going to get perfect diversity of every viewpoint. The physics department is not going to hire uh, people who think the universe is 6,000 years old. The history department is not going to hire people who think, you know, that the Holocaust never happened. Uh, the, um, so, you know, having, having diversity of perspective within a discipline does not mean total diversity of everything. Um, it means specifically what research those scholars think is valuable. Um, and so there has to be discretion for the, for the faculty um, and for the university to, to, to sort knowledge and decide which knowledge is important and which fields of inquiry are important. And, that, and of course, there can be input uh, from that, from the outside world, from activists. Uh, so I guess my main concern is that the activists are wrong in focusing too much on the race and gender of people instead of the kind of research that they're performing or the kind of uh, it's it's not clear to me that that the way our his, the history department is now or the way the political science department is now is that what it needs is more uh, study of minority communities it's not I mean there's there's going to be people studying all sorts of different things and it's just not clear to me that this kind of that this that their agenda is 
is what would serve to best further uh, knowledge. Um, so, um, so again, it's it's not a simple question of more diversity, less diversity. It's not a simple question of, you know, uh, free speech or not free speech. It's a it's a it's a complicated question of who, what the university wants to accomplish. And in my view, um, you know that 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 is reduced. That is de- that is degrading ultimately the function of the university if if we're going to focus in this very tribal way on people's identity uh, without regard for their scholarship or the um, the the kind of re- the kind of work that they're doing. And um, you know, and I guess you know, and I guess ultimately you know they could say, well, you need more feminist historians. And uh, you need more women, uh, and you know, and we and the history department could have fifty faculty members and five feminist historians, and then I could say that seems fine to me, and they and then someone could protest and say we need twenty five. It should be half feminist historians and or eighty percent. I mean, at some point there's a disagreement of values, and uh, I guess you know from what I can tell about who's teaching us, my values are for history are not the same as uh, I don't I don't I don't see. I don't see the project of historical inquiry or political science inquiry as a way of validating people of different ethnic groups. I don't think that that should be the metric that you that you decide uh, what kind of scholarship you pursue. It shouldn't be, uh, you know, we want to make all Hispanic students feel that they're being studied sufficiently and uh, that their that their history is being studied sufficiently and gay students. I don't think that that's how you should measure scholarship as uh, as um, kind of serving the purpose of validating students and making students feel good because they see people who look like them. I think it should be about what kind of knowledge is being created and what kind of research research is being pursued. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't think that sort of aim of the institution or what you consider to be the goal of scholarship might be compromised in some way just, just by implicit biases, by not, you know, considering these sort of hiring processes? Oh, I'm sure that I'm sure that there's all sorts of implicit biases uh, in the hiring process. I'm I'm sure that there are, and I actually do think no department will tell you that they don't take that into account when looking at women or minority applicants. That they don't have some kind of built-in preference. I highly doubt that any academic social science department would tell you that. They do. They are trying to uh, recognize that there can be biases. I mean, another kind of bias is. Uh, is bias against uh, conservative faculty, arguably. There's there's just a book out by John Shields and Joshua Dunn um, called Passing on the Right, which sort of says that uh, fa- social science faculties are 92% or, or more uh, you know, progressive left, and there's naturally a bias. All people have biases for people who are like them in every way. And there's a bias against. Uh, there's probably some level of bias in hiring and promoting conservatives. Um, you know, do I think there should be affirmative action for conservatives? No, uh, but um, anyway, sure, we should be alert to bias. I don't. I, I think from what I understand, most of these sort of more militant movements with demands are not about sort of taking into account bias. They're sort of about remaking a department into a political and ethnic and gender-based project. That prioritizes um, ethnicity and identity, and uh, as opposed to actual knowledge, um, in a way that's very illiberal and ultimately uh, bad for the purpose of the university. So, recently, in response to this, you know that the publication that was 
also prominent when you were here, the Stanford Review has responded um, with some strength. And earlier in the year, um, the Stanford Review pitched the petition fighting for Western civilization. And as you know, that was um, slightly controversial, at least. Um, and there was significant backlash to the point where they felt actually that they were being silenced on campus and they felt that they were victims of a sort of witch hunt. And do you think, how do you think that free speech, you know, discourse in the nation figures here and where the conservatives might actually be the minorities on campus? Well, I think that conservatives on campus are in a situation where they're clearly a political minority. Um, I think, I mean, I can just say a few things about this. I mean, I don't know what I would have thought about this Western civilization requirement. I haven't studied it. I do know that when you read sort of conservative Jeremiads, the university no longer studies Western civilization. I've just found that to be totally not true. I mean, I studied history and I studied and I took some philosophy courses and I was exposed to Hayek and Mill and Locke and uh, and all the Enlightenment tradition and other sort of conservative writers. But I mean, but I mean, this idea that there's no education in Western civilization that you're exposed to, I think is, in my personal experience, I always found that to be way overdone because I was exposed to a lot of Western uh, thinking and Western civilization. So I don't know about that particular um, agenda item. In terms of conservatives, I do think there's, there is some extent of a persecution complex that they can sometimes develop on campuses that's a little bit unfortunate. Um, and, uh, you know, this idea it's a leftist academy. I mean, David Horowitz wrote a book, Tenured Radicals. There's no shortage of these sort of uh, conservative crusades against the university it's, um, uh, where liberals are being systematically persecuted and so on. And again, it's not without any grain of truth. Conservatives are a minority. The speech codes and uh, harassment codes are probably used disproportionately to um, to target people who say things that are, you know, evangelicals, you know, for their views of women and so on. Um, but I, I also think that the persecution complex and the idea of the academy is hostile, very hostile to conservatives, you know, is overblown, and they and they sometimes end up uh, sort of making the same victimization arguments that they deride when those arguments are made on the left. And I actually, and I think you see that a lot in sometimes in anti-Semitism debates because that kind of scrambles the usual categories uh, where if someone says something that's arguably anti-Semitic, conservatives will, um, this, the, the sides in the free speech debate will be reversed and the left-wing activists who are trying to suppress people's free speech all the time will suddenly become free speech crusaders for a Palestinian student who wants to say death to Israel. Uh, but then, but then um, you know, on Conversely, on the right, you have people who have always championed free speech, saying the university is anti-Semitic. We need to crack down on anti-Semitic speech. I mean, the University of California recently adopted a statement of principles on anti-Semitism. Uh, I forget what it was, but you know the details of it. But it was it was largely supported by conservatives, and and liberals were saying it was going to infringe on freedom of speech and freedom academic freedom surrounding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so again, without knowing the specifics about about these particular disputes, I think that things are not, uh, uh, I don't think that it's a gulag for conservatives in the academy, and, uh, and I think that Western civilization maybe is 
in my experience, was given its due, but maybe students can go through college without taking it. Like on this topic of, I mean, you mentioned the example of where anti-Semitism debates often flips the categories when it comes to political correctness and freedom of speech, and you actually wrote about that last year towards the end, and you termed it as sort of um, outrage Olympics. Do you think that the very fact that these categories can flip so quickly and switch sides, does that make you question that our, understand, our general understanding that the right is anti-political correctness and the left is political pro-political correctness, is that a wrong characterization and rather that they're both within forms of political correctness? or How does that affect your idea of political correctness? Political correctness is a hard term to define. A somewhat easier term is freedom of speech, and that always has switched its political valence all the time. I mean, the some of the Supreme Court's iconic free speech cases were in the early 20th century regarding persecuting socialists, uh, prosecuting socialists for distributing leaflets and so on. Uh, there were there were cases in the 50s uh, regarding universities, and you invariably had you know the right on the side of suppressing speech um, and the left championing it because it was often communists being persecuted. So I think often uh, the principle of free speech in America is just invoked as a kind of... Um, uh, instrumentally for people to, because they agree with the, with the speech in question. Uh, uh, I think it's true that sort of because the right is sort of in retreat on culture war issues in America, you now see, for example, in the Hobby Lobby contraception case in the Supreme Court there, instead of arguing uh, we should restrict, the right used to argue about restricting contraception because it's immoral and so on, now they're arguing it's our right, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, uh, you can't. You're going to quash our ideas with the government if you uh, force us to go against our conscience. So you see, sort of the right uh, adopting more of this language, as I think, it it's it sort of loses its majority and uh, sort of the political consensus in favor of conservative ideas on culture war topics crumbles. Um, and on campus, of course, uh, you've had this for a while, ever since ever since about the 80s or 90s, um, when sort of liberals attained a, a bigger majority on college campuses. So it's kind of, it, it's inevitable that the political minority on any given question is probably going to invoke um, free speech more. But, you know, I don't think the left, well, I do think there are elements of the left that are particularly sort of authoritarian about this. I don't think... Um, you know, the, these campus protesters that shout people down and so on. Um, Any more than the right was? It depends. I mean, obviously, Mac McCarthy and some of, some of those things that happened at that time. You know, and, no and now you have, you know, sort of the rise of sort of Trump warriors on the populist right that employ all the same tactics as what are derisively called, you know, as social justice warriors on campus. SJWs, grievance, outrage, shouting people down. And you have, you know, Trump, of course, <laughs> you know, in, our, in the politics, of course, rallying people around a very authoritarian message, saying he's going to cancel libel laws, repeal libel laws, prosecute newspapers that say the wrong thing, you know, having his staff sort of manhandle reporters. So, I mean, no, I don't think the left is, you know, inherently more authoritarian than the right. I, I will say this, though. I do think there's an idea... Starting with Marcuse, the uh, German-American political philosopher, there was this idea that free speech was not a right in and of itself. Uh, it was about it was an instrument for the powerless to be liberated from the powerful. So, 
if you have someone who you deem to be powerless, they have free speech rights. Someone you deem to be powerful it, uh, doesn't have free speech rights. And I do think that's, that's an idea that's had purchase on the left, going back to Marcuse, who wrote Repressive Tolerance in, in I believe, the 60s, so for half a century. Um, there's a sort of Marxist analysis of free speech that sort of denies that it exists, and the, and the, and the people who believe that, I worry, are, um, are uh, winning more power. In, in our society. That, that, that is a common argument that's being used, though not in that language. Um, when the review wrote its satire of the Who's Teaching Us Demands, there was a common critique that there's a difference between punching up and punching down. And that seems to be exactly kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, no, there's exactly uh, the punching up and punching down. Um, someone, someone used that language after the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre. I forget what his name was, but... Uh, but but that became a a term that your Charlie the magazine is punching down on France's repressed Muslim populations. Um, that uh, you're punching up supposedly if if there's someone more powerful than you. Um, and and so free speech is more legitimate when it's punching up than punching down. I think you know in addition to being unworkable, and adi- in addition to being, um, you know. Uh, it's it's obviously a, it's an understandable impulse. I mean, the humans have an impulse for empathy, and uh, and we don't like to see weak people getting beat up. Um, the the theme, you know, we we respond to stories of the the powerless um, asserting their dignity against the powerful, and that's understandable. And um, but you know, that's that's a totally unworkable um, idea in practice. And it's also you know this idea that the review is punching up. I mean. Or the review is punching down. Uh, the review, and in what's and in what sense, uh, you know, the, the the other people have far more popular support, right? The the review is much more unpopular on campus. They're saying something much more popular. They're probably getting, you know, just as much blowback. Um, the idea that you know, again, so it's so it's too simplistic uh, to say that someone is is punching down, or versus punching up. It's impossible to to really. Um, to really say. Yeah, I, I'm interested in hearing your opinion on how, I mean, generally, it's, I think the reasoning behind the accusation that the review is punching down is because the argument goes structurally or on a nationwide scale, there are structures that oppress um, certain minorities, and the review does not, is not a part of that minority, and rather it's part of the um, oppressive I guess, structural force, or whatever that might be called. Is this, do you think the problems that you just identified have to do with the unwieldiness or difficulty of kind of localizing these more general um, problems in the nation? Because um, as we talked earlier, conservatives are a minority on campus, and how that power dynamic reverses in the local level in some areas. Um, but... I mean, the conservatives are a minority on campus, but in what sense would, in what sense are, are they inherently more powerful than liberals at the nationwide? I mean, they don't have, the president is a liberal, the next president is likely to be a Democrat as well. I mean, um, you know, there's, a, there's this idea, sort of, this sort of mythology on the left, like male, white, Christian, these are all necessarily categories that confer power. Increasingly and disturbingly, we've been seeing this, like in the British Labour Party, 
they sort of are lumping Jews into that category. Jews are powerful, and Jews are have white privilege, and so therefore we can take away their rights because they're too powerful. Um, so you can't take away anyone's rights because you think they're too powerful, um, and and it's just anachronistic to just assume, this goes back to what I said about teaching, just look at someone's physical appearance and determine how much uh, power they have uh, is, 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 a, is a very anti-liberal um, idea. The, the point is that we all need to be treated with equal dignity and uh, with equal rights and approach the public square with equal rights and responsibilities as each other. Um, you know, and... And and this this business of of uh, sorting structures of oppression and dis distributing rights to people based on their perceived place in the hierarchy of privilege as created by campus activists uh, is not is not going to fly and um, is is sort of deeply rotten at its core and you know very and uh, corrosive to liberalism at its core. So I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been an honor to have you back in the room and back visiting SPJ. Um, My pleasure. We wish you the best. Thanks. <laughs>